All right, let it, let's open the word together. We are starting a new series in the book of Nehemiah. So we will be in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. My name is Nate, good to be with you this morning. If you join us online, I wanna welcome you. Let me take you back to January 1st, uh, 2020. It was about, I want to say 12.03 in the morning. The ball had just dropped, and my family and I were in a basement packed with people. Remember, that's January 2020, right? We would, anyway. um, So we're there, and there's family and their friends, and all of a sudden, Sweet Caroline comes on, all right? And to be honest, it was, it was hopping. I mean, it was crazy. Like um, parents, kids, friends, you know, you get to the part of the song where it's like, da, 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 you know, like so good. I mean, people are just screaming it at the top of their lungs in this small basement. We're all packed in. And um, have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it's a concert. Maybe it's with some friends in a car. I don't know. Um, where you're blaring a song. You're singing a song. Well, if you have, you know those moments, they're, they're such great memories, right? There's something about those moments of singing a song with others. And let me submit to you today that if you've ever experienced that, that's actually a window into what you were made for. It's a window into what you were made for. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if, you, you know, if you're going to read a book, have you ever just gone to the very back of it? before we even started it, to figure out how it ended. You don't just ruin it at that point. 
Um, maybe you haven't. Maybe you're, you know, the one that begins at the beginning. But if you were to go to the back, the very last book in the Scriptures, one of the scenes of where all things are headed is of a group of people from every nation singing a song. Singing a song of praise to God. In other words, you could say this, that the whole storyline of Scripture is, in one sense, from cover to cover, it's about God making a people who will praise Him for His glory. Now, if you're new to the Scriptures, or if you're new to Christianity, that might sound strange. It might sound impractical. It might even sound narcissistic, as if God's just trying to make people praise Him. But let me remind you for a moment that all of us, in one way or another, are all doing this throughout our days and our lives, right? In in one moment, think about this. The last time you went to that great restaurant and you got that one meal, some of you took a picture of it, right? Some of you posted it on InstaFace, right? Some of you raved about it with your friends. Or maybe some of you, you know, it's that, it's, maybe it's that new dress or it's this team. Whatever it is, when we see something beautiful, when we see something wonderful, we can't do anything but show others how great it is. And therefore, in one way or put it this way, the reason why that final snapshot in Revelation, the final book of Scripture, why they're singing praise to God, it's merely, it's merely as C.S. Lewis put it, if you know God, you shall in fact fall on your faces. And that's what the end of the Scripture shows. From cover to cover, it's a community who know this God's grace and His power and His truth and His majesty and they sing. Well, enter the book of Nehemiah. You know, if you know anything about Nehemiah, you maybe know it's about a guy named Nehemiah. You'd be right. Good job. You know, you passed the course. Um, but you may know that it's a book about this guy rebuilding a city or being a leader who's, who leads this rebuilding of a city, a wall. But it's actually about much more than that. In fact, We know that because the wall gets done in chapter 6, and there's still six more chapters to go. Nehemiah is about this, as one of my pastor friends put it this way. It's a story about a great God who empowers his people to give themselves to be a community who live to display his glory to the world. Or to put it another way, it's about a people responding in hope and faith to who God is and recommitting their lives to live for His glory. Not just to rebuild a physical city, but a community of people that with their words and lives make much of Him. And that's our hope in the series, honestly. Our hope in this series is that God might do a work in our lives, that he might renew for some of us, and he might empower us to be a people who give ourselves to the building of a community of people who live for the praise of another.
So, as we get in chapter one, let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, we um, just come to you this morning and ask you for your help. Pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as chapter one opens, uh, we're going to see this. Nehemiah is going to, in a sense, give everything he has to rebuilding the city. He's going to risk it all. That's what's coming up in the coming weeks. And the question really is, like, where do you get a heart to live that way? Like, how do you actually get in a space where you're willing to risk it all for something? In order to know what's going on here, we have to have some context. So here it is, Nehemiah, just so you know, it's the last chronological book in the Old Testament. In other words, chronologically, there's nothing after this in the Old Testament. It's 400 years of silence, and then it's Christmas, okay? It's the Gospels, okay? So there's a lot that happens before this book, obviously. Brief snippet, we see a God who created us, a God who loved us. We see our first parents rebel, and because of sin, we, we walk away from him. And yet God makes a promise that he's going to come after us. He's going to rescue and renew this world. That's a big picture. But this process of coming after us in the Old Testament, it takes place in history. So, for example, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and makes a covenant and says, hey, through this man, through this family, all nations of the world are going to be blessed. And from this family grows a nation. If you know some of this, the book of Exodus, we see them enslaved in Egypt, but we see God, this God rescue them out of Egypt through the hand of Moses and then give them his law. And the high point of this nation really is going into the land and we get to King David. They're in power, they're in prestige, they're the most powerful nation in that area. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise that from this line of David, a king will come and his reign will never end. His reign is going to bring justice and righteousness and peace. And yet along this way, this story is not one of God's people being perfect. It's actually a, a very much a story of, of their failure. They're repeatedly unfaithful to the covenant, even after plenty of warnings from God. And 150 years before Nehemiah, there's just a small portion of this nation left. And it's the, it's the nation of Judah at this point. It's the southern kingdom and Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., Babylon comes, and as God told them would happen, they are conquered, and they go into exile. And yet here's the deal, even before that happened, God had made a promise. He had promised that in the midst of their exile, he was going to restore them. He was going to bring them back. And actually, specifically, in Isaiah 44, Isaiah gives a promise that God's going to do this through a man named Cyrus, the king of Persia. And in 538 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, takes over Babylon, 
conquers them, and he makes a decree. We actually read this in 2 Chronicles. Listen to what it says. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now, Cyrus, he had mixed motives, okay? But nevertheless, he's an instrument used by God in this rebuilding, this restoration that God had promised. So, Here's where we are. At the beginning of the book of Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, the precursor, there are two initial waves of restoration. By the way, there will not be a quiz over this later, but it's helpful to understand this history. Zerubbabel goes back first, and they rebuild the temple, the worship of God. It's not as glorious as the former temple, but they rebuild the temple. That happens about 515. And then Some 60 years after the edict by Cyrus, this guy named Ezra leads a second wave along with 50,000 other returnees. And Ezra's commission is to teach God's law. He wants this rebuilding, not only to, to rebuild the worship of God, but he wants God's people to be governed by God's law. And this brings us to where we are in Nehemiah chapter 1, 13 years later after Ezra. And Nehemiah is in Susa. It's the winter residence of the Persian kings. And he has a very influential position. We saw at the end of verse 11 there, he's a cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer to the king, that was the man who would basically taste the wine and the food and make sure none of it was poisoned before it got to the king. Think about this for a moment. He is a man in incredible access and influence. He is one of the highest trusted advisors to the most powerful man on the planet. And yet, as he's in this position... We read this in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah gets a report. And the report is this, the walls in Jerusalem are not there. The city is in trouble and shame, and and more than likely, this is not the news that happened 150 years ago when it was initially nailed down, but it was probably what happened in Ezra 4 where there was some sort of rebuilding and apparently it had been torn down since then. Now here's the question, Nehemiah gets this report, and how is he going to respond? Let me give you three options of ways he could respond. The first, it could be indifference or apathy. I mean, just think about this for a moment. He's comfortable 
He has a key position in the world. He has access and influence to important people. Honestly, what does he have to do with something that's happening a thousand miles away? He could simply move on with his life. Not trouble himself. He's fine. After all, you might say, what can he do? Or secondly, he might respond with angst towards his God. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. He could have said something like this, God, you promised to bring us back, and you've only partially delivered. It's been 150 years since that edict by Cyrus, and tell me what's happened since then. Yeah, there's a temple. Yeah, there's instruction by God, but, but now, the, not, now the walls are down again? God, what are you doing? Honestly, he could have responded as well with skepticism or doubt. Listen, he is in a land where, let's just be honest, they're worshiping plenty of other gods. What makes him think that his God is really the one true God? He could look around and go, everything's in shambles. This all doesn't make sense. As far as the eye can see, there's no real clarity on what God is up to in this world. And he could have just received the news as one more verification that why should he actually trust his God? Those are all options. And yet look at how he responds in verse 4. We read this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response is one in which his heart is undone. His heart is grieved. His heart is in sorrow. We will see in the coming weeks, Nehemiah leverage his position, risk his life, leave his position of status, and throw it all into something that's happening a thousand miles away. And guess what? It's not going to be easy work. In fact, it's not even going to be a happy ending in this book. Do you understand that? Like he's going to throw it all in. At the end of chapter 12, you're going to go, really? But here's the point. Nehemiah's heart is undone. He cannot, he cannot help himself. He can't do anything else but, but weep and mourn at this news. And here's why this is important for us. If Nehemiah is a story about a people responding in hope and faith to who God has proven himself to be, if Nehemiah is an account of a story of recommitting ourselves to live as his people for his glory, the question comes to bear on each of us, why would we give ourselves to that? 
why not just respond with indifference and apathy to what's happening around us? Why not respond within, with just skepticism or doubt? Who says this is really the true God? Why? Why would we give ourselves to something even if we don't even know the ultimately like what's five or ten years down the road going to look like? It's such an important question. Why is Nehemiah responding this way? And what does that mean for us? Kathy Keller, not Tim, Kathy Keller writes this. She says this, Nehemiah, here's the answer, is interpreting the present events and his own situation and gifts in light of God's word. And in light of the main themes of the word, he sees where his people are in the progression of redemptive history, so he seeks to enable them to be the people of God, so the Lord will continue his plan to save the world through them. In other words, Nehemiah is looking through eyes of faith, through God's word, And he knows who he is because of who God is. He knows who his people are. And he knows where they are in this story. And therefore, he knows what to do next. And here's what he knows. He knows this. I said this earlier. In 2 Samuel 7, God had made a promise that from the line of David, a king would come. And he knows if this city is not rebuilt, then this nation will lose its identity And the long-awaited king that's supposed to come through this line will not come. And the nations will not know of this glory. That's why he throws it all in. That's why his heart is undone, because he knows the redemptive story. He knows where they're at in the story. And he gives himself to see the people empowered to live in light of that. So how about us? It's a few years after Nehemiah, right? We're a little farther along in the story. Let me remind you, the redemptive narrative, in other words, the scriptures are not just a bunch of mini stories. There are stories there, but it's actually part of one larger story. It's what the song is all about. We see this God creating the world in light of our sin, making a promise to come after and rescue the world. And guess what happens? 400 years after Nehemiah, the long-awaited king comes. God's promises come true in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus inaugurates a kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection, promising the forgiveness of sins and promising that because this news is going out, he's going to welcome people from all over the world into this family, that that's how his kingdom expands. And that those who by faith trust him are all of a sudden then welcomed into that family. And he pours out his spirit. And they... 
And if you're in him, we are now a part of that mission. To see that news go to the end of the world, to our neighbors, to our... Does that make sense? Like, this is where we're at in the story. Peter writes about it in first, he writes this in 1 Peter 2.9 about who the church is. That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here's what this means. If you're a Christian, Maybe you're a first-time parent. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're a software developer, a doctor, a nurse, an architect. It means simply this. You are a people for God's possession to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. It means if our hearts are going to break for the things that break God's heart, It means we reframe our lives around the gospel, around the main themes. And right, it's so easy in this world to be so myopic. But here's what it is. As one person would put it this way, it's it's this. It's not not so much what's God's will for my life, but it's what's God's will. And in light of that, how do I radically align my life to that? It's a huge shift. Nehemiah is undone because he understands the scriptures and he understands the story of God. He's willing to leverage his position and his status and where the people of God are and move them forward to what God's called them to be. That's my hope in this series, the Redeemer City, that we'd see and know who we are in light of who God has called us to be by His grace. And we might be a community that would live out the purposes of God in this context, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our school, and live for His glory. Well, if we're going to do that, How about this? Where do we start? Where do we start with that? Well, let's look at how Nehemiah starts. It's actually really helpful. We already saw it briefly in verse 4, but I'll just highlight this. He begins with prayer. That's how he begins. In fact, this is actually months of prayer. Uh, Oswald Chambers puts it this way. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Um, I'll just, just put myself here. That's, that's convicting. <laughs> um, if I'm honest, much of my life seems to be based on self-reliance. can oftentimes rest on my competence or my skills or my past experience. 
If I'm honest, I can have an inflated view of myself and have a very deflated view of God. I can oftentimes live as if God doesn't care about these things or is too small. But one of the things that I want to learn, and I hope you want to learn, is before we move into this call to live for God's glory, before we're called into doing, which there's a lot of good things to be done, is Nehemiah begins with prayer. Let me ask you, what, 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 might that, what, what might this mean for you? What might this mean for me? As we enter this series, listen, per, perhaps for some of you, it's, it's the commute to work. I recognize for some of you, like that just means getting out of bed and going to your computer, right? Um, but maybe it's the commute to work in which you turn the dial off or the podcast off and you begin the day in prayer as you commute to work. Perhaps some of you, you're just a young parent and you're just trying to sleep train your kids. You're exhausted. Oftentimes you find yourself up at 3 a.m. in the morning. What if in the midst of those moments, you use those as opportunities to pray? What might it mean for our city group life together? Oftentimes, there can be rhythms in which prayer is, is kind of the tag on on the end, right? There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But, but what if in this season, we built rhythms in which we started with prayer? I don't know what this means for each one of you or collectively, but as Nehemiah enters in with his heart that is burdened, this is where he begins. He begins with prayer. But it's not only that Nehemiah begins there, but it's also what he prays. And this will be brief, but let me put it this way. Nehemiah prays up, he prays in, he prays through, and he prays out. It's a really helpful rhythm. Look at verse 5, he prays up. He says this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Think about this for a moment. In that day and age, I said this earlier, but, but everybody's gods of the nations were just tribal deities. Just one among many. But notice what Nehemiah is saying. No, no, no. This is the great God of heaven. He is not a tribal deity. And he's great and he's awesome. Nehemiah begins taking his heart that has been undone, and he takes it to a God who is able to help. He adores God for who he is. That's how he starts. But then he looks in, and this is confession. In Nehemiah verse 6 of 1-6, listen to what he says. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you command your servant Moses Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Nehemiah confesses his sin, as well as, well as he confesses his people's sin, as well as his and his family's sin. He doesn't see it above them. It's, it's a community thing. And Derek Kinder summarizes it perfectly, this first part. It says this, after adoring God's greatness, and confessing our smallness, we realize that God owes us nothing. 
and therefore we come empty-handed. And that's the right posture. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He prays through. And that means this. He, he, in, in essence, he prays through the promises of God. He knows what God has said. And so he pleads that to God. And l- listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. God says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through your outcasts or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He simply prays back what God has promised. You could say it simply this way. He simply prays back Scripture. You know, going back, maybe bridging from last week where we talked about just meditation on Scripture, it's, in one sense, it's as simple as, as you read it and you reflect on it, you pray back in light of it. It's what Nehemiah is doing. And then lastly, Nehemiah looks out. This is verse 11. He says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah is looking out. He's thinking about his position and his status and the purposes of God, and he sees a door. He's been praying for months, and now he feels like this is the next step. This is what God's called him to. And we'll see what happens next week, but let's, let's just bring it back to where we are today. It means this, as we begin in our own day, to align our lives with the very purposes of God, as we see opportunities for service and deeds and words of gospel proclamation, As we see that, it means we lay those things before God and we ask for his help. We remember this. This is one of the great hymns where it says this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions to him bring, for his presence and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Nehemiah is on the verge of something. And it's because his heart has been broken. It's because his heart is for God's glory. And he begins with prayer. And it moves him to action. Let's respond in the same way. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks today for the work that you have done over the years as we've seen your hand at work, ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And we pray in this series that as we step in, as we reflect on where we are, Lord, that would, would you move our hearts? Would we catch glimpses of your glory and your goodness? And would draw us in? And Lord, would you make us a people that be empowered to not live for ourselves, but to live for you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.